All right, so today, full disclosure, this is a really, I don't know why, but in my spirit this week as I studied this text and thought about this text and dwelled on this text, this, there's a lot of ways we could have taken this message to this week. This is a text that as we look at today in John chapter 14, we will do our best to get through verse 20. Uh, really, that's just me trying to pace myself. And the reason I say we'll do my best, I have more pages of notes than I normally have. And even as I built the PowerPoint, I was taking me longer to build the PowerPoint. And I think this could be two sermons in one. So if it gets to that point, I've just said, Lord, have your way. And if you want me to stop talking, I'll stop talking. And if we just need to respond at one particular moment and we need to come back to it next week, then we sure will. But we're not going to rush ourselves through it. But at the same time, I don't want to allow my brain to fixate on one particular thing as your pastor. My job is to take God's Word and to preach it faithfully in context to you so you can understand what the Bible says. And I want to do that, all right? And if that gives me permission to finish my notes, then great. If it doesn't, then that's great too. And we'll figure it out. Uh, because otherwise, unless you want to give me till 6 o'clock tonight, we should probably just stay with the plan that's at hand, all right? So let's do this. Let's read the text and let's think about this as we read it today. Here we see Jesus calming troubled hearts with trust and hope in Him. And as you read that, as you can think about that, you'll, it'll make a whole lot of sense to us. Let's read this together today in John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be, or you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, uh, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it, it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, uh, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, uh, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And you know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Wow, beautiful words for us to think about today. There's a few observations that we're going to do, and I think when you take this kind of text and you look at this, we're just going to kind of hit 
points today for note takers, things that you should catch in the text, all right? And the first one I would say is this, straight out the gate, there's this command to calm the troubled heart. And that kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? A command to trouble the heart, to the trouble, uh, to calm a troubled heart. Jesus tells these guys, guys, let not your hearts be troubled. And the disciples, they had reasons to be troubled. Jesus had just told them that one of them was a traitor and that all of them would deny him and that he would leave them that night. Think about that for a minute. Those are all pretty much any one of those legitimate enough to feel troubled, to say, man, how in the world is this the way it's supposed to be? And the thing that Jesus is doing here is something interesting. He said, Jesus never wanted us to have a life without trouble. But he promised that we could have an untroubled heart even in a troubled life. I want you to see that because there's so often this prosperity gospel and this, uh, or even in the fundamental camp, this legalistic idea that those who walk with God don't have bad things happen to them, or, and that's even in the fundamental camp. And in the prosperity camp, it's like, you know, just, you know, tithe a little bit more and get God good and all this stuff gets going and, and I get a plane and all this stuff and, and you won't have anything bad happen. Here's the problem with that. Life. Life shows me something else, does it not? It shows me that both of these people need to go back to the corner with Jesus. And then you need to come back to God's Word and realize when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why is He saying that? Because their hearts can be troubled. I mean, does anyone ever pay attention to warning labels? Do not use this hair dryer in the bathtub. Someone did it. And they tried to sue a company. You realize, you remember that day when somebody got hot coffee from McDonald's, burnt themselves, sued McDonald's. Now McDonald's has to put warnings on things. This cup could be hot because you wanted hot coffee. When I read these verses, I see Jesus saying, guys, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. That's their way out. To believe in Him. That's our way out. When when He saw that because of what He had said to them and made them sorrowful and and had filled their hearts with this, He pleads with them in great love and He seeks to comfort them. And He says, guys, you believed in God the Father, the One who I have told you has sent me, and I'm telling you to believe in Me too. Instead of giving them a, a, and giving into a troubled heart, He tells them, firmly to put their trust in Him and that all these things would happen. Uh, The verb believe both times is imperative. Jesus is urging His followers to continue to believe the Father and to continue to also believe in Him. You know why? Because they've actually walked with Him for three years. This is not like He's leaving them three three weeks on the job or three months in in the discipleship program. Three years. But how many of us know we would have really gotten comfortable with that? Like, I mean, I would. would. There's some comfort in that. And so we see here this command to calm a troubled heart. That's an interesting way of doing it, but here's the thing I want you to understand. Uh, As the hymnist says, uh, trust and obey. We sing this at Brookville Assisted Living every time we go. Every time we go, we sing 
uh, trust and obey. And there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And the verse goes through all these things about life from verse 1 to verse 4 of the hymn. And we sing the full narrative of life and how it is important for us to say, wherever he sends, we will go. Why? Because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Jesus calmed the storm for those guys one night. A bunch of fishermen used to being in a boat, used to being on a water. They get freaked out. You would have too. And, and Jesus calms the storm. And they look at him. They're like, who is this guy that he can tell the winds and the waves to knock it off? And they do? It reminds me of this mug that Lizzie went thrift store shopping with uh, Sarah the other day. Several of the girls did. This is something our family does, I guess, besides me. I'm out of the loop. But everyone else is in the loop. And they go, and Sarah's like, I'll give all you girls $2. Go find the best find you can for $2. And everybody's picking out different things. Lizzie goes, what about this mug? And it was 75 cents. It was a coffee mug. And the half of the mug says, you're on mute. <laughs> you're on mute. And she was like, yep, you can have that. You know, it was like, and you win the contest today, because that's really hilarious. And so the other day, Lizzie was eating her lunch, and she had her you're on mute mug. And so, anyways, as I think about this, I wish I could say, man, that problem is on mute, but it's not. Life comes at us, and, and these disciples, they're in this, this upper room discourse with Jesus, and they're realizing these things. But then there's a second thing I think we see in verses 2 through 4. Reasons for calming the troubled heart. And here's what he leans in on. A future reunion. This future reunion in the Father's house. He says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. He spoke with complete confidence about heaven. And here he's speaking of, the father, of his Father's house as this metaphor for heaven. The thing I want you to catch is this. As he's clearly thinking about heaven in this state, the way the Scripture talks about us, the one thing that even Jesus in this state of, of of development, of God's kingdom, and all those things, Jesus didn't wonder about the life beyond this earth. He has no fear here. He knew and He told His disciples there was room for all in heaven. That These many mansions and that He's going to prepare this place for them. In other words, I'm going to make this awesome for you guys. I have come to bring about redemption, but there are many other people who will come after you who need to experience salvation because I've chosen them before the foundation of the world. And you're going, who is that? You and me. And he says, like, we need to, there is more to unfold here. I've just come at just the right time to bring about salvation, but there are many rooms. I think he's opening them up to see that God has this big plan. And as, as we know that, it's because John, when he writes Revelation uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, he says he saw that great vision and the, the, the Lord told him to write it down. And in that great vision, you know what it saw? Every tribe and every tongue was at the throne. Who's all there? Every tribe, every tongue. I think Jesus is prophetically speaking as we look at this text. And He says, I will go prepare that place. I go. He speaks, uh, Jesus of, this speaks of Jesus' own planning initiative. Can I just say it this way? Jesus wasn't taken to the cross. 
He went there. Do you see the difference? Everything in this moment, he is not a victim. He is a volunteer. He is not defeated. He is going to defeat. He is not walking up there with sorrow, but for the joy that is laid before him, that he would fall out and, can, and, and into the trust of the Father and show us all these things and pray for us, even on the cross, pleading, Lord, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing here. In other words, he's leaning into these things and he's like, guys, I am going to go. And they thought his death was an unforeseen calamity. And Christ is teaching them in this moment, even though they're not catching it, that it was a path of his own planning. And he says, I will come again. Now, I, I, I will come again. That's a very precious promise to the early church. One, um, it, I will come again, I think, speaks to his resurrection, which he does come back again. Uh, I think it goes to his ascension, that moment where they see Jesus ascend to heaven, and they're told he will come again. Just as you've seen him, he will come again. And I believe it leads us to the second coming that we all wait for. And every Christmas season, we have these candles on the reef as a church family. And we have Advent readings from people in the family, the church family. And we light these candles. And what are we awaiting? We are awaiting Jesus to come again. And let me tell you what stands in the way of that. Nothing. His return is imminent. He could come back any moment. Life is not a thing that you should play games with, my man. People are like, well, I'll take my chances with Jesus. I don't know where I'm at yet. Do you run red lights always? No. You know why you don't run red lights always? Because you know one day you're going to get T-boned, don't you? So if you're going to say, I'll take my chance with Jesus, then start running every red light from this day forward. And you go, well, I wouldn't do that. Why would you do this with Jesus? We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. I would take my chances with Jesus. I would decide in my heart and I would respond it's a very precious promise to the church. And I think so often we, in our time, need to catch this because I think we think we have another thousand years before he comes again. I sadly think that some people think he never comes again. And then you have my generation that doesn't even believe that Satan exists. And then you have the church thinking they got another thousand years to live any way they want. What's wrong with us? This was a precious promise to the early church. It was these things that fueled them to tell people about the Lord later on. They recall these words. And John, when he's writing this gospel, you remember what he told you in chapter 20? I'm writing all these things so that when you read it, you would believe in him, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing it, you would have life. And I think when he penned these words, because the Holy Spirit was moving him to do so, he could not help but think about Jesus moving and the precious promise that he did come again and that he's left again and he said he's coming again. And the fact that he wanted you to know when you read this, you should believe in God too. You should believe in Jesus too. You should believe He's coming again. That where I am, you may be also. You know what He tells that thief on the cross? There's one dude that's over here. There's two murderers. Two thieves, I believe. Two thieves. And one of those is making fun of Jesus. And one's not. And as he stands there, he's like, Lord, on the cross there, he, Lord, remember me. And Jesus tells him, 
man, listen, this day you will be with me. There's this wonderful response to Jesus and this idea that we need to see that it is never too late. Some of you are sitting here today and you're going, I don't know, man. If I took God serious and started doing stuff that God has for me, I just feel like it's too late. Don't buy that. I always like to tell my family and I smile because it means we're about to do something crazy. It's never too late for a good idea. It's never too late. In verses 5-6, through six, we see that Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. I want you to hear the word exclusive today. And it ought to lead us not to get on a high horse. It ought to not lead us to sense of pride. It ought to lead us to humility. It ought to lead us to think about people who have yet to find the way and understand who He is. It ought to lead us to be convicted to the heart today as I am that there are billions of people who have yet to hear this. Billions. Jesus is the exclusive way. Uh, Philip says, you know, hey, Lord, or Thomas, Thomas says in verse uh, 5, Lord said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you're going. How can we know the way? Uh, Thomas should be praised for his honesty and actually clearly explaining his confusion. He thought Jesus was simply going to another place or another city. And he's like, well, you know, we'll meet you there, man. Just tell me where it's going to be. I know, you know, we can go over there too. Spurgeon talks about this and he says, often, talking about the disciples, they show their ignorance, but never uh, do they seem timid in his presence or ashamed to let him see how shallow or hard of understanding they are. That's another thing you need to see in this text. They're looking at him and they're greatly confused. But here's what's cool about Jesus. And here's what's cool about the heart of God. They could be honest and vulnerable and ask what seems to be a silly question, but felt comfortable with Jesus. The incarnate word in flesh to be that kind of honest with Jesus. Yet so often you don't feel that way at church, do you? You get around religious people, you don't feel that way, do you? I'll full-on confession with you because I'm not um, uh, uh, the most academic guy. Um, I, I'm not. I'm just a hard-working guy. I will work harder than most people if I want to do something, but I'm not smart. Uh, I'm not that intelligent of a guy. And I'll get around some other preachers and they'll start tossing words. And some of the times I know I know that word, but I have to think about it for a second. And I even find myself going, okay, what is that word again? And I'll have to think about it. And these guys have this language and this understanding. And even when I'm hanging out with these guys, never do I ever say, yeah, what was that again? What is that? Why? Because I even don't feel comfortable. And can I just say this? I don't want that in our church. Because it's not in the heart of God. It wasn't in the heart of Jesus to rebuke these guys. They were just like, listen, Lord, we don't know where you're going unless you tell us. So you just how can we know the way? And I like the way Spurgeon looks at this and he says, you know, guys, they showed their ignorance. They, they didn't seem timid to him. And Jesus responds with these incredible words that I've memorized years ago. I am the way the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say that He would show us a way. He said He is the way. He didn't promise to teach us a truth. 
He said that He is the truth. And He didn't offer us secrets to life. He says He is the life. These are dogmatic phrases. These are things that, uh, in light of the soon events, this is a great paradox for us. It's a great paradox for anyone that reads the Gospel of John because Jesus' way would be the cross. He would actually be convicted by blatant liars. His body would lay in a lifeless tomb uh, uh, soon because He took that away. He is the way to God. And because He did not contest the lies, we can believe He's the truth. And because He's willing to die, you can believe He's the channel of resurrection and the life for us. I'm thankful for Jesus. No one comes to the Father. No one is is getting into heaven and eternal life, the new heaven and the new earth, everything that awaits us except through Jesus. He makes this remarkable statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me say it this way. Simply put, if Jesus is not the only way to God, then He's not any way to God. I want you to be careful because so often when you're talking with people about spiritual things, you'll find that people get really uh, sentimental and nostalgic and philosophical and it just sounds real Socratic and like Socrates and, and you know, you'll just, you know, all these things and you look at this and li- listen, let's don't make this hard. Jesus didn't claim to be a good teacher. You need to know that. So everybody goes, well, I just believe he's a good teacher. Did you read his gospels? He didn't. And he is either who he said he was, or we have other big issues. Let me just say it this way. There is no middle ground available here. There is no middle ground. Guys that write about this often that I would commend to you, one of those being C.S. Lewis. Look that guy up and listen to some of his stuff. Read the book Mere Christianity. Lean into those things. Guys like A.W. Tozer. These guys are dead. Read the dead guys. Don't read the new guys that are trying to get New York best time seller stuff because their church bought thousands of copies when they really didn't even sell those copies. Listen, these were guys that really wrote, moved by the Lord and convicted. If there are many roads to God, then Jesus is not one of them. Because he absolutely claimed that there was only one road to God and he himself was that road. And Jesus is not the only way to God, then he was not an honest man and he is most certainly not a true prophet. And he would then either be a madman or a lying devil. So we have to understand this is the way the Scriptures say it. And we need to know that and believe that to be true. Another observation in verses 7-8 through eight, when we look at the text. Uh, if you had known me, you would also have known my Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. And Philip says, show us the Father and it's, sufficient. it's enough for us, Jesus. We see in this text the idea of knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Jesus says, if, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In other words, Jesus explained why He was the only way to God. Because He was and is the perfect representation of God. Guys, if, if, if you don't see this now, if you don't say, well, I've never seen the Father, I, I, you know, and you're sitting there looking at, I've told you everything I say is what the Father tells me to say. Everything I'm doing is what God the Father has told me to do. I am modeling it. You could have looked 
right at me at so many times when I've shown you, prophetically spoke over things to you, that to know that this is this, that I am from Him. And that He is in me. Uh, to know Jesus is to know God. He is the eternal God the Son in the flesh. He has deity and He has humanity all within Him. And this is important because he says from now on, you know Him and you've seen Him. They, they apparently understood that they hadn't seen the full revelation of the love at the cross and His power at the resurrection. But then they would know. And as they cry out here and as Philip's honest, he says, Lord, just show us the Father. It is enough for us. He had seen and experienced so much in following Jesus but he had not yet seen God the Father with his physical eyes. Perhaps because he thought that would be this life-changing experience. And then Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I believe in 9-11 through 11 we see Jesus again explains his unity and his dependence on the Father. I don't want to get lost in this being some Trinitarian text, but I do believe that this points us to the idea of one God expressing himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of ways we can't explain it. I was thinking about, there's a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And even in there, uh, he reflects on this and he says, where there is mystery, we should allow mystery, but where there is clarity, we should not allow confusion. Um, and then he talks about the dimensions of the world and how you can draw a line on paper and you can see that, you can draw a square, but then as you get into different dimensions, you can find uh, that there are multiple squares to make this cube. And then you start to understand there's dimensions that you had no idea about. The way I would say it is, if we understand the Lord, He is too small and He is not going to be worthy of our praise. But you won't, you won't figure that out. The one thing I will tell you is, don't compare it to the egg or the water. Bad illustrations. You know, it's, well, it's, you know, it's like the egg. You have the shell, then the white stuff, and then the yellow stuff. God's an egg. Come on, man. You know what I mean? Well, it's like water. You know, you have the solid, the liquid, but then the gas, right? You know, it's like, that's what God's like. No, because scientifically we know that's two hydrogens and one oxygen. Please, God is more complex than this. The way I would say is you should look at the text, and I like the way Tozer says it, where there is clarity, there should not be confusion, and where there is mystery, allow mystery to be. But Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus, but they both are God. Jesus, again, I believe, models for this, and He explains His unity and His dependence on the Father. He says, I've been with you so long. Philip had been close to Jesus, yet still did not understand Him. He says, whoever seen me has seen the Father. This gentle rebuke reminds Philip what Jesus has often said, was to know Him, was to know God the Father. And to, to see the love of Jesus was to see the love of God the Father. 
And then that phrase where he says, he has seen me, has seen the Father. There's a verse I want to pull before us today out of Exodus 34. You can, we won't turn there and read it today. But in Exodus 34, you see Moses asking to see the glory of the Lord or to see God. And he says, hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and, and I will pass by and you can, you can behold just a little bit of my glory. This forever finishes the idea, by the way, today. And this is why I wanted to point this out. This today, John 14, where we are, forever finishes the idea that the Hebrew Scriptures present a cruel God and Jesus showed us a nicer God. You realize there's a teaching out there today like that? It says that God of the Old Testament's an animal and He's cruel and He's mean, but Jesus is he's a nicer God and, and different things. Hey, where do we get that idea? Obviously not from Scripture, because Jesus is literally saying, I am the I am. I am the heart of the Father. And everything that Exodus 34, 5-9 has told you way a long time ago, I have built my ministry on, and that is who I am. In other words, this thing that flows around in our day and time that says the Old Testament is different than the New Testament or the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God is heresy. And it needs to be put where it is. I don't normally talk that bold and that direct, but I'm just telling you, if people believe that, then you're picking what you want to believe and you're not believing the Bible, you're believing yourself. God is not cruel. Every time he brought judgment, he gave an opportunity for people to, to turn and repent. You realize God doesn't owe us any warning. He doesn't. We are nothing but the pot. And what does the pot say to the clay maker? So he says, the words that I speak to you, I don't speak of my own authority. He's repeating something he's already emphasized in the Gospel of John. That Jesus lived and spoke in constant dependence on God the Father and did nothing outside of His authority and guidance. We read that in chapter 5 and in chapter 8 and several different places that we've already been. And so he says, believe in God. That's why he's saying, but also believe in me. But he says, believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, then just believe in the works themselves because there's this massive thing that God is doing. And there's these three assurances today that God gives them. And I think we probably will make this a two-sermon thing. Thank you, Lord. Three assurances today for troubled disciples. These guys are a hot mess. You've literally just said one of us is going to betray you. You said we're all going to leave you. And now you're going to a place we don't know where you're going. And now you're telling us in this discourse to believe in you and, to, and, and this command is what you lead with to comfort my troubled heart. Just trust you. That's hard. Is it not? Have you ever been to camp? Uh, maybe when y'all were younger. If not, you can imagine. Um, they used to have like this pole that was about six or seven foot tall and you would get a kid up there on that pole and then all the group behind them would interlock their arms. Um, and we would stand in front of each other. And then the whole exercise was everybody in the group was going to have their turn up on the pole. And when you're up on the pole, you're just supposed to do this and fall back and trust your youth group. 
Some of you were literally like, nope, not doing that. That's not happening. I mean, I almost thought that would have been a great exercise. Like Mark Watson's going to come over here. We're going to have this poll. We're going we're gonna to do, everybody's going to trust fall today, right? I mean, literally just imagine. But, but in so many ways, what we're told to do is to turn and trust Jesus. You do realize this, right? And trust is an all-in thing. It's different than belief. You know, the old dumb illustration, I could say, do you believe, you know, let's say I take you out to Niagara Falls, and I'm like, hey, man, you believe I could tightrope walk, walk across this tightrope across Niagara Falls? Yeah, man, we believe in you, Lee. Yeah, you're awesome. And they're all like, dude, I can't believe he's going to do this. We're going to see him fall in the water. It's going to be awesome. Oh, do y'all trust me? Yeah, 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 we trust you, man. Go ahead, do it. Do it. Okay, well, since you trust me, why don't you get in the wheelbarrow and I'll push you across. I want you to understand, when we say we believe in God, it's not like a believe but a disconnected belief. It's a trust thing. It's a I'll get in the wheelbarrow type thing. It's a you can get me through this, so I'm with you. So there's three assurances, and here's one of them. That when Jesus departs to the Father, His work will continue on earth. He says, most assuredly, uh, the first of those is given to His disciples. Right on this night of departure, He answered this fear, and this fear that they had was this. This is the end, and the work is over, and we have all been fired. Thing is, they didn't get fired. They got promoted. Jesus is promoting them, literally, quote, to greater things. He says, the works that I do, He will do also. And Jesus expected us who believe in Him to carry on His work in the world. He didn't expect His disciples to disband after His departure, but to carry on His work. Greater things than these you will do. The greater works, as Bruce, uh, commentator, writes, of which He now spoke to them would still be His own works accomplished no longer by His visible presence among them, but by His Spirit working within them. In other words, these greater works than these will He do. Here's what He's pointing out. Jesus did not mean greater in the sense of a more sensational, but in greater magnitude. I mean, like, how do you... Nobody would even top what Jesus does. Uh, Last time I checked, he's the only person to, besides Peter who followed him for a little bit to walk on water. It's like, well, if Jesus walked on water, we're going to run on water. No, that's not what he means. But what he's saying is this opportunity that he would, he would leave behind a victorious, working family of followers who would spread the kingdom of God to more people in places than Jesus ever did. You realize Jesus never really even traveled that far from home? He really didn't. And so he knows that this thing is going to move. And I do want to point out Leon Morris. He has a good point about this text. He says, what Jesus means we may see in the narratives of the Acts. Talking about the book of Acts. There were a few miracles of healing, but the emphasis is on the mighty works of conversion. On the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to this little band of believers than throughout Christ's entire earthly life. There we see a literal fulfillment of greater works than these shall he do. In other words, let me tell you what the great miracle working thing of Jesus is today. Conversion. 
regeneration. Seeing people who don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, experience Jesus, and see God do an amazing work in their life and literally bring in this spiritual family of people who, spiritually speaking, were orphans, but now have a family. It's the family of God. It's a powerful thing. And he says, I do all these things because I go to the Father. He would, Jesus would explain here just later on in this gospel that when he ascended to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit. So the Father has sent the Son, the Son has sent the Spirit, and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in the Gospel of John, has sent you and I. There's this continual sentness of the Scriptures, and it's because Jesus went to the Father that the Holy Spirit came upon His people, enabling them to do greater works. And what are the greater works? Even saying this phrase, I mean, have you, did you catch this wonderful phrase here? That whatever, in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You thought about that? That's huge. He further explains that these works are possible because that's how that would happen. One commentary guy says this, Barclay writes, the test of any prayer is, can I make it in the name of Jesus? <laughs> he says, no man, for instance, could pray for personal revenge or personal ambition for some unworthy, unchristian object in the name of Jesus. So when I'm about to pray, and I wonder if that prayer is going to be answered, we have to almost think for just a moment, kind of coaching in our spirit, can I even pray and make this in the name of Jesus? Or would Jesus say, no, we're not going to do that. That's against what I've already even told us to do. Another assurance today is this. When Jesus departs, He will send the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, uh, you need to understand, He says, how, you, how this works out is if you love Me, you keep My commandments. Jesus had just demonstrated this remarkable love by washing their feet back in chapter 13 in those first five verses. So here's what I want you to catch. He commanded them to wash one another's feet after the example he just displayed. Then he commanded them to love one another after the pattern of his love for them. And then I want you to see this. He commanded them to put their faith in God the Father and himself. This is a fair measure of our love for Jesus. It's easy to think of us loving Jesus in sentimental or emotional terms. To talk about the crucifixion in great details and feel sad that somebody would be killed in such a way. An innocent man being killed in such a way, it's moving. It's, but I want you to know this today. It's, it is wonderful when we have a love for Jesus that's built on sentiment and passion, but it must always be connected to keeping His commandments or it isn't love. The reason I want to say that is because so often we, we build this culture on being like almost like a fan of Jesus. Like Jesus is not Justin Bieber. 
He's not a pop star. He is our Savior, our Lord, our King, and our God. And he says, if you love me, man, you would keep my commandments. In other words, you would see that what I have for you is better than what you have for you, and my ways are better for you than your ways for you, and that the only way this is really going to work is if you'll turn and trust me and keep my commandments. Keep them. I like to think of them as keys. Where do you keep keys usually? In your pocket, close to you. When you wake up and you're about to leave the house, what's the first thing you do? Where are my keys? Where do you put your keys? In your pocket. Or if you're like my wife, in your purse, thank God she has this car. You can push a button and the car unlocks and then you can push this little button and the car starts and she never has to find the key, right? She just has to keep the keys on her, right? Like she never has to really, there's gonna be moments where, you know, she could go out there and she can fail. All she's gotta realize, I just gotta go back and get my keys. Keep God's commandments near you. If you love him, you will. The proper source, though, of, of, of obedience is love. Let me say something in the parental thought, not just in the parental relationship you have, but with the fact that God is Father. If you have an obedience problem, you have a love problem. And if you have a love problem, you have a relationship problem. So when I'm disobeying God, we have a, we have a heart a love issue. And then we now have a relational issue. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. So here God is laying out for us to keep His commandments, to walk with Him. Why? Because He sought to, in every way He could to love us when we were unlovable and be with us in relationship and love. And when we see He first loves us, we in turn can now love Him because His love is an honest love and a good love. And when I come to that honest and good love and I respond to that, I am now positioned to experience this obedient, trusting relationship because I realize my real source is honest and good. I don't know about you, but I think when we see this, he says another helper. The, the Greek points out this kind of this idea of this. Another of the same kind. And let me just even just stop there today. I won't even give you the third assurance. We'll pick back up on that next week. This is a twofer. Do you realize it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? You realize that God is not trying to short mankind out? And I will not spoil the movie, but I did watch the Thor movie. And uh, I know some people haven't watched it yet, and, and I'm bad about spoiling movies, but I won't. But as I did watch that movie, and as I've often watched Hollywood, it sort of paints this idea of worshiping any god as a foolish idea. And how these gods will really just, they're not for you, and blah, blah, blah. And you see this sentiment, almost kind of like a, you can't help but feel like a jab on Christianity when you watch a film like that. You're like, did I just get jabbed and I don't know about it? You know, sometimes you don't feel a jab. You know, you, the jab is not the thing, right? It, the, the thing on the jab is to watch out. When you've been getting a left and a left, there's a right coming. And I felt a little jab as I watched that movie. 
And I think it's because so often we, we think we are entitled to our rights and our opinions because we're, as Americans especially, have rights. And I believe in all those governmental things, and I believe that God uh, put these things in order. He installs governments, and I believe, thankfully, our founding fathers had some liens to understand from the text. They weren't perfect men, but there was some ideas at least to kind of understand the freedom of religion and getting out from under those things. And I'm thankful for how God worked in, in those broken men in, in ways that was beneficial. But can I tell you today, Every knee and every tongue will bow before Jesus. Every knee, every, every, every tongue will confess. We all will give an account. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You go read uh, Romans, and, and you read in 2 Corinthians 5, where um, it talks about how we are all going to give an account for our life. Now for believers, this is a family judgment. In other words, um, he is, as a father, is going to sit down with us to see when it says, the Bible says, whether good or bad, good and the word bad in the, in the Greek there would be worthless. In other words, whether these things that we did were good and pleasing and, and, and beneficial or they were just worthless. We're going to give that account. And that's why that, that hymnal writer even put it together the way that I love, one of my favorite hymns, The Old Rugged Cross. And The, the Old Rugged Cross, till, till at last I will cling to the cross, till at last I lay my trophies down. In other words, here's what I believe is going to happen. Lee Kemp believes he's going to live his life seeking out the kingdom of God and seeking out the things that God has told me that if I follow him, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And he is going to lay before me and say, Lee, these are the things that I want to tell you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And these are the blessings I have for you. And the blessing of that moment is to realize in all of my brokenness, to say, God, you delivered me from the pit, the miry clay of my own sin and selfishness. Because for so long, God, I wanted life to be only what I wanted. And it was a whole lot of me, 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 me. And it never led me to do anything beneficial for others. It led me to think more for me and more for me. And then one day, you saved me from me. And then you set me free to see life. And how life is only found in you. And so I lay these blessings right back before you. But then there's some people who don't know the Lord. And there's a great white throne judgment. And many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do spiritual things? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, I knew about you because I'm God, but we had no relationship. Can I just say this? I'm talking about judgment because judgment is real. But can I tell you something? Somehow or another, whether you're watching online or here in person, I'm telling you, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. And here's how you know you can be saved on the last day. If you will turn and trust Him today 
And every day, deny yourself and follow him and keep his commandments and the Holy Spirit indwelling your life and following him. And all of these things happen when you first turn and trust him. Have you done that? Has there been a moment in your life where you said, Lord, I give up. I'm not living my life my way and myself. All it leads to is more brokenness. And the best I know how I'm asking you to save me from my sins and be my leader. Be my Lord and my God. Because I love you. Because you've loved me when no one else has loved me the way you have. And now I want to follow you because you have an honest and good love. If you have never done that, then today, in this moment, we'll have a time of response. You could come, you can pray with me, or you can, in a moment when I pray, I'll pray with you, and you can pray there, but then you still need to tell somebody. You need to tell me. You need to tell people in your life because God doesn't have lone rangers. He has this thing called the body of Christ. And this is a church. This is a safe place. Where do you stand with the Lord? And then lastly today, I'd say, if you're a believer and your heart is troubled with something you're going through, can I just tell you what the Lord wants to tell you? Believe in me. Believe in me. And maybe you need to be assured that the Lord himself is with you. He has not forsaken you. Let's pray together. I pray that today we would respond in a way that would honor and glorify You. Father, I pray if there's someone here who has yet to trust You, for You to become their Savior and Lord and have that personal relationship with You, Lord, that, that if they need to do that, that today they would. That they would just pray that prayer of surrender and trust. And Father, if it looks something like this, and if you're here today and say, well, what do I do? And you just something like this, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your son for me. And the Lord, the best I know how, I, I surrender. I trust you. I want to walk in life with you. I ask you to give me peace and forgiveness and your presence in my life every day from this day forward. And in Jesus' name, because we pray in Jesus' name, the word amen means so be it. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray for believers today. They're hearing this and, and they're wondering what to do in their moment, in their dark night. God, I pray that we would renew our belief in You. Remind and preach the Gospel to ourselves again. Thank You, Lord, for how You don't walk out on us. You will not leave us as orphans you have prepared a place for us. And in it is many rooms because there is many people who are yet to come to you. And so Lord, I just pray that we would get this grip on our heart as believers. You would fill our heart for a passion for evangelism again. To tell people about you. You'd fill our hearts again to be ready to serve, to love people. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.